0: It's good to be back here at um, Community Bible Church. Uh, I think I was here just a month ago, it feels like. And it's really in that framework of what we talked about a month ago as we walked up toward Christmas and as we progress through the Gospel of Matthew that helps me put in context what's been happening this week. I suspect, like many of you, I've been um, both transfixed, horrified, and uh, vaguely obsessed with the news that comes out of Haiti at this point. It's hard to imagine that kind of devastation. It's hard to imagine those kinds of deaths. Um, Maybe it's because of the type of imagination I have. Um, I can read the stories about the kind of physical what happened, or about the issues on logistics. I really personally struggle with reading the personal stories um, of people who are trapped, in part because I'm the kind of person who, when I start to read those stories, I start to imagine myself in that position. So I tend to avoid disaster stories, because for every plane that crashes, I think about what it would be like to be on that plane in those last couple of seconds. I won't go on, <laughs> but I can spend hours doing this, and that's what I lay in bed thinking about. What it must feel like, what emotions are you experiencing. I wonder if you feel somewhat similar. I wonder if you all, if we as we're watching the news with its incessant, Um, reporting on what's happening, feel both outraged at one sense of what's happened and the inability to actually deliver aid in a way which is easy and efficient and terribly powerless at the same time. Um, Even if you're able to give money, it feels pretty insignificant and insubstantial compared to the vast tragedy, horror, and pain that's occurring around us. That's framed my entire week, pretty much, Um, and framed the way that I began to think about the passage before us. And it was helpful for me as I thought through the week and thought through this passage to remember where we've been. That the good news for us as Christians, what gives us hope, what gives us endurance as we exist in a place, in a world that experiences this kind of tension is that we worship not merely a God who's all-powerful, who can deliver comfort and aid and support, healing and care, but we actually worship a God who, if you remember just a couple of weeks ago, entered this world as a child. The incarnation's incredibly good news for us as a church, because it would be one thing to worship a God who is powerful and far off, distant from the pain, yet choosing to act every now and then, but we worship a God who entered the world in the midst of pain, whose first couple of weeks was surrounded by slaughter and exile and travel, who identified with our sin and our brokenness in his baptism and in his temptations. He's not a God who's far off at all, but who willingly enters not just the spiritual pain that we experience, but the physical reality of the world as well, but in some ways, That's part of our question, part of the problem that faces us when you read these kind of passages on healing. So let's look at them again, and I appreciate the way the lectionary fell this time in holding these two uh, passages together. Jesus has been baptized, he's been tempted, he's gone up to the mountain to preach and delivered uh, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, essentially a recapitulation of, of kind of the Exodus and Mount Sinai experience for the people of Israel, isn't it? Once again, God is speaking from the mountain. He's delivering a new law to his people, one which actually exceeds the old law in its difficulty and its challenge, which presents before the people the same command as before. The Lord is holy, so you be holy. And then he begins... To engage in ministry in the community, at least as Matthew tells it. And he heals a paralytic, he calls disciples to himself, he restores people to life, and heals a woman. And after the crowds have gone away, I'm oh sorry, after um, he heals this young girl who has died, and this, young, uh, this woman who had this hemorrhage, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying loudly, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind man came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their eyes were opened. Then Jesus sternly ordered them, see that no one knows of this, but they went away and spread the news about him throughout that district. After they had gone away, a a demoniac who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the one who had been mute spoke, And the crowds were amazed and said, never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, by the ruler of demons, he casts out the demons. It's striking to me that when Jesus came, he didn't just wander around preaching. He didn't merely come to die on a cross. But in his years of ministry, preaching and acts of power were combined together to identify who he was and what he was about. It strikes me that Though often what we focus on is the restoration and the salvation of individual souls, Jesus goes about doing something a little bigger and a little bit more dramatic. He goes about restoring creation, and it's in that context, I think, that we understand the healing miracles. It wasn't that Jesus was merely moved with compassion for every sick person he saw, because clearly he didn't heal every sick person. Mark tells us that he healed in um, Capernaum for a day and then immediately moved off, even though the crowds were still gathering and people were still coming. Even if he was just wandering around Asining or Yorktown Heights now, he couldn't, feel, he couldn't finish healing all the people who needed to be healed in a single day if he were to interact with each one and touch each one. In a space of three years, he couldn't even get through Galilee, much less the rest of Judea. Jesus' healings at those points were certainly acts of compassion, but they were something more. He was demonstrating God's desire not just to redeem individuals, but to restore his broken creation. In his miraculous actions, Jesus addresses both the physical and the spiritual, healing both the blind as well as casting out the demons, the natural and the supernatural. There's no area of creation which remains outside of Jesus' interests and desires to heal. It's what Paul is pointing to in Romans 8 when he says all of creation is groaning, waiting for deliverance, redemption. Until that time that the children of God are revealed in their full glory and Christ has returned, then all of the sin and brokenness which infects this world will be released. And you'll hear God say, as you do in Revelation, I am making all things new. He's not making all new things. He's restoring the world to the way he intended it to be. And that's why, at least according to the Gospel of John, Jesus' first act, first miracle, was the making of water into wine. Now, it's a little bit unusual. You would think it would be healing that John would point to, or you would think it would be some dramatic demonstration of mercy and of grace, but what Jesus seems to do is take the ordinary stuff of creation and make it better. He takes a celebration which is an affirmation of God's creational goodness, marriage, and he allows the celebration to continue. He knits together a community and brings joy. It's the first day of creation all over again. And from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 21 and 22, you see God at work. Creation is made and creation is being renewed it's all new things, not just all new people. I want to suggest that for those of us who've been praying and agonizing and hearing about Haiti, this is really good news, the extent of God's healing work in the world. It's not just his desire to save and to heal individuals, though, please, God, may that be so. But it's good news that God intends to restore this broken creation, which has caused this devana- devastation as tectonic plates move. But He also intends to change not just the individuals or the physical creation that we're in, but I believe he's out to to heal the systemic injustice, which is part of the world as well, right? We all know the devastation at Haiti wasn't merely caused by the movement of tectonic plates, but the poorest country in the Western hemisphere is much more vulnerable to the collapse of buildings, which aren't built with the right resources. The absence of a government which has never been stable. The lack of resources internally to help and to save. The tragedy at Haiti isn't merely the tragedy of a broken creation struggling to be all that God intended it to be. It's compounded by centuries of systemic injustice, of failure, of oppression, and exploitation coming to roost. So that when devastation comes, it comes totally, absolutely, and thoroughly. When God works his mighty acts of healing, we desire it and expect it and experience it as individuals, but we'd be short sighted to believe that all he's concerned about is people. When God created this universe, his affirmation was, This is good. This is very, very good. And his creation delighted him, it brought him joy. And it's been subject to frustration, Paul tells us, because of sin ever since. I think if we allow ourselves to understand healing in this bigger, more comprehensive picture, it begins to make sense of then what God desires and how God is working in the individual healing that we experience as well. Because otherwise it leads to this incredibly self-centered world where my pain, my struggle, or the struggle of my friends is the sum total of what's going on. But it's part of a larger work that God is doing and he invites us and sweeps us up into it if we allow him to. And then begins to send us forward. How does he do that? I think in part, he invites us to do that by weeping with those who weep. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus has just finished telling us in the Gospel of Matthew. It's, I think, when we allow ourselves to be engaged, not disengaged. When the incarnation becomes our model of how we live our lives rather than insulating ourselves from the world, that we begin to see more clearly, that we begin to experience more deeply what God's about. I have a colleague um, named Al Shi. Al talks about the fact that um, he has always had very poor eyesight. Um, Al's Asian, and many of us feel like we should have just been born with glasses. <laughs> and after years of struggle, lost context, he finally just thought, maybe I should go in for um, eye surgery, get my vision cleared up. But he felt, always felt like you know, maybe it was a little bit of luxury, right? Al wants to live simply, Al wants to give his money away appropriately. And he said, you know, isn't it a little cosmetic, a little bit like a tummy tuck, basically? (laughs) And Al, being a reasonably young man, was a little appalled at that. But after losing his contacts one more time, he began to tote up how much money he was wasting on replaced contacts, contact solution, enzyme cleaners, and the like. And he thought, maybe eye surgery isn't such a bad deal after all. And so he went in, and of course, um, because of the thinness of his corneas, he couldn't get the cheaper surgery. It had to be the more expensive surgery. But he rolled forward. His vision improved quite considerably, moving something from like 2,400 to 2,040. And he said, everything is almost clear, but not quite. So he was supposed to go for an um, enhancement process um, and did, but you know his vision kept oscillating as his eyes adjusted to their new um, focal point. And then he came to come to an InterVarsity Asian American Staff Conference. And he said, during that staff conference, we were focused that year on um, how does the gospel empower us to engage systemic evil in the world? They were singing a particular worship song called God of Justice, and the lines that moved him were this, live to feed the hungry, stand beside the broken, we must go. Stepping forward, keeping us from just singing, move us into action. We must go. And Al says, as I closed my eyes as we repeated this chorus, keep us from just singing, move us into action, we must go, praying that God would direct him. He thought, you know, and it's true, Al's kind of a nerd. He's an editor with InterVarsity Press. He's kind of a big etiquette. He said, you know, I'm so cerebral, it's all in my head, abstract. What does it mean that I'd have to engage so that I don't insulate myself, but incarnate myself in the world around me? He opened his eyes and he found himself crying a little bit. And his eyes were wet and the words on the screen were hard to read, and then suddenly the words came sharply into focus. And Al thought at first, his heart started pounding, like, have I been miraculously healed during worship? I mean, what a testimony, right? We love testimonies like that. I was worshiping Jesus, I opened my eyes, and I had perfect vision. (laughs) And as he began to, as he blinked, he realized all of a sudden the words went back out of focus. And what he realized was happening was the film of tears that were over his eyes were acting as a secondary lens. And the tears were literally allowing him to see clearly for the first time without corrective lenses. I want to suggest to us that sometimes allowing our hearts to be engaged so that we weep and agonize, that we mourn and that we struggle actually may allow us to see more clearly what God is doing in the world than remove detachment or merely intellectual engagement with the problems before us. God invites us into whole body engagement with his process of healing. And it strikes me, strikes me as I look at Jesus' healing, rarely does he seem to do it far off. Father, the entire village, now. But the stories always seem to, because it would have been remarkably efficient. It's what I would have done. Jesus, just point to the north. Samaria, done, right? Instead, they're individual encounters. Slow. Slow time-consuming and repeated as the refrain in healing after healing, Jesus' heart was moved. His spirit was moved within him. And more than just speaking words of healing, how frequently Jesus' words come and his hand moves and he touches. And he engages. It strikes me as I look at these two stories that Jesus isn't merely demonstrating his desire to redeem all of creation, but he addresses both the way sin in its systemic and individual ways has affected us personally and the force which attempt or destroy us externally as well. I don't believe that human illness or brokenness is necessarily um, caused by our own sin or failure. Jesus addresses that clearly. But the effects of sin on creation results in our sickness and our death. Emotionally, physically, or mentally. And whether it's caused by an external force to us or by our own bodies betraying us, in these two stories, as Jesus both addresses the issue of the demoniac as well as the blind man, he seems to be saying, whether it emerges from within or from without, I have it in my control and I can heal. I'm engaged and involved. I wanna suggest that Jesus invites us to participate in what he's doing in the healing of the world by faith. It strikes me in these two stories, both of the blind man and of the demonic, there are two different avenues that people come to Jesus by and receive his healing hand. One, for the two blind men, Jesus says, according to your own faith, you are being healed. It's not the proportion of faith. Like, you know, I, I'm judging you at about 50%, we're gonna get you about 50% of your vision back and then we're done. Jesus is neither so crass, um, nor so mechanical, right? If even with the faith of a mustard seed, you could move a mountain. Instead, it seems to be saying, because you have faith, I will heal you. And how do these two blind men demonstrate faith in Jesus? Well, if you look at the actions that they take, they follow Jesus to his home, they cry out to Jesus, they plead with Jesus, and they believe in Jesus. There's both a plethora of prepositions there, but also of actions. To engage in faith for many of us means that you follow Jesus. You go wherever he's going. You allow him to lead you where he will. You cry out to him, believing that he is the son of David, the Messiah, the one who is able to heal. And then you plead with him, engage with him, and pray with him. And then when you're asked, do you really believe, you affirm with all of your faith, I do, I do, help us. I think often of that poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson, In times like this oh yet we trust that somehow good will be the final goal of ill to pangs of nature sins of will defects of doubt and taints of blood that nothing walks with aimless feet that not one life shall be destroyed or cast as rubbish to the void when god hath made the pile complete that not a worm is cloven in vain that not a moth with vain desire is shriveled in fruitless fire or but subserves another's gain behold We know not anything. I can but trust that good shall fall at last, far off at last to all, and every winter change into spring. So runs my dream, but what am I? An infant crying in the night, an infant crying for the light, and with no language but a cry. At its heart, prayer is that cry maybe in the dark, maybe wordless, but believing that the Holy Spirit himself utters words when we have no words to utter for ourselves. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Demonstrate your power and I trust you. I will follow you and I will continue to cry out to you. It's interesting to me that it's not just our own faith which seems to be implicated in these works of healing, but it's the faith of others because the demoniac does not follow Jesus. He neither could hear nor speak anything of him. It says the demoniac was brought to Jesus by the community of, believe, of people who seem to know something of Jesus. Right? This is exactly what happened with the paralytic who's lowered through the ceiling, one of you know, those favorite Sunday school stories. The paral- paralytic was incapable of coming to Jesus, but it's when Jesus looks at the faith of those friends that his heart is moved. And he says to that paralytic, as he seems to say to this demoniac, You are healed. Go in peace. I don't understand how it works that way. But somehow in the economy of God, the faith of the community around us changes the way God chooses to interact with us. Actually, it's not that difficult, I suspect. It's the heart of intercession and prayer, isn't it? It's why we pray for our friends. It's why we intercede as a body. It's why we engage in serving one another as a fellowship. Because as we do, somehow God pours out his healing blessing around us and on us. Um, I asked you to pray a month ago for Urbana 09. I think it was the strongest conference we've sponsored in a decade or more. One of the speakers that hit me was a pastor named Sundar Krishnan up in Toronto. And one of the things that he said is, whenever we pray, we need to know that prayer is an act of spiritual defiance of what is. Prayer is an act of spiritual defiance of what is in response to what God has promised. The shape of the future will be determined by those who can survey all of its possibilities and by faith grasp on one as possible. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. And it's not the power of our intercession, I'd suggest, because it's always the power of God, but there's something about the community of God gathering together to intercede, which invites God to act and sometimes particularly for those of us who've been chronically ill or struggled over the long haul when our own faith seems insufficient, too tired or exhausted. It's the body of Christ coming alongside us and around us which lifts us up and brings us into the presence of God. And when we lack the words, I believe the Holy Spirit prays on our behalf, often through the very people the Holy Spirit indwells. I love his lines. Prayers is an act of spiritual defiance, because it moves our emotion from merely weeping, I think, into aggressive anger. I had a friend named uh, Emery. Emery was on my staff team when we were doing some training in racial reconciliation and systemic injustice, and it was a pretty engaged, all-consuming, interactive, experiential program. At the end of the program, as she had experienced some of the reality of racial injustice, um, the the facilitator turned to her and said, what are you feeling? And she said, I just feel sad. I feel sad for everything that's happening around me. And he looked at her and said, sadness is a weak emotion. Sadness requires you to do nothing other than wallow in your own feelings of imp- impotence and despair. Sadness is basically self-serving. You should be angry. You should be angry that they, this is the way the world is and this is not what God intended. You should be angry that death is occurring and not life. You should be angry that illness exists and not health. You should be angry that untold numbers of people probably suffer and die even as we're meeting here today because of both the natural realities of the world around us and systemic injustice. I want to suggest that while initially we weep, God invites us to be angry not at him, but the fact that this is not what God intended. To be angry enough to motivate ourselves out of our seats, out of our comfort, and out of ourselves to engage the world, because in the end, anger is focused at something, and we're angry not at God, but the reality of sin. That's why when I think Jesus saw the dead body of his friend Lazarus, Um, The Gospels say, essentially, he snorted with anger. He was infuriated at the reality of what death is about the world, and he chooses to act. And God invites us to move from sadness to anger and then into action. Well, you come then to the story, which I think is very appropriate and which we can talk through pretty quickly. John, Jesus' cousin. John the precursor to Jesus, his herald and his announcer. John, the one who's promised that someone greater is coming after him, hears everything that Jesus is doing it, and he's hearing it from prison in chapter 11. It really makes you wonder, doesn't it? If God can, why doesn't he? I suspect a little bit of that's what's going through John's mind because um, he hears this announcement of what Jesus is doing. The blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the mute are speaking, the lame are walking, leopards are being cleansed, the good news is being preached the poor, and he's sitting in prison and nothing has changed for him. God's power and mercy and healing have not extended as far as him. So I think he sends this message to, um, through his disciples to Jesus and asks, Are you really the one who is about to come? Or are we to wait for another? Because I seem to be waiting right now. And Jesus responds, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news brought to them. And Jesus is waving at his hands at Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, which is when God says, I will end the exile, and this is how you will know I have arrived. You will know your God is among you when the blind see, and when the deaf hear, when the lame begin to walk. And there's something about um, God returning to his people that should have brought John's heart joy, but he experiences it as despair, I suspect, because he's still in prison. The end of his life is certain, his days are numbered. In some ways, knowing the goodness of God makes the, the lack of experiencing God's goodness that much more acute, doesn't it? I have a friend um, named April. Um, She's been one of the most emotionally and sexually abused people I've ever encountered in my life. I encountered her when she was in college. She never lost her faith, but I remember um, after she left the hospital, she'd been hospitalized for severe depression to the point of near suicide. She said, you know, Greg, the intense pain is not having to confront my past. I realize I need to do that now. I can't live in denial. The deepest, most acute part of my pain as I sit in this darkness is I know God loves me. I'm absolutely certain God loves me. I could never not believe God loves me, but if this God loved me, why hasn't he healed this yet? Why did he allow this to happen to me? That's what causes me pain, not the trauma of my past. It's interesting to me that John wrestles with this, because Jesus will go on to praise John as far above any other prophet of his time. Far greater is John than anybody who's come before. But I think John offers us a model, doesn't he? Because what Jesus encourages John to do is to continue to trust, to wait, and to expect. John prays, John waits, and John dies. And it would be unbearable except for the fact that the man who invites him to not stumble over Jesus, is the man who experiences that same experience of God's withhold, withholding of action as well. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he weeps and he prays and he pleads with his father, let this cup pass from me. It would be wrong for us to expect that Jesus kind of walks up in sort of a musical version of his life, flings himself to the cross and attaches himself there. There was actual agony for Jesus at that moment in the hours that preceded his death. Jesus pled with his father for a change of action would allow him to escape the pain of sin and the brokenness of the world and the reality of political oppression. Jesus prays and waits for God to act and in the end, God's answer was no and where Jesus moves from faith is to a place of not my will but yours. And that would be fine and beautiful, but what gives me comfort and hope is Jesus prays that not just once, not just twice, but three times he goes back to the Father, let this pass from me, but not my will, yours. If Jesus can wrestle so deeply with the delayed reality of God's healing, then I think it gives those of us who wrestle in the same way hope now. I know many of us pray for God's healing, restoration, and redemption. and It feels like it's never coming, or it's coming too slow, or uncertainly. Yet, if God could invite his own son who had never sinned, to wait, to trust, to expect that healing will come not before the cross, but after the cross, where renewal comes after resurrection, then maybe it gives us just enough hope and a model to follow if Jesus invites us to do that, walk that path as well. Jesus reminds John, don't stumble because of me, because Jesus himself will model what John needed to see. A man thoroughly given over to God, trusting God for the future, experiencing the reality of sin, but fully experiencing healing at a way and at a time which God has chosen, which far exceeds the pain that he experiences now. I think of the Christmas hymn that I suspect we, you all sang at some point, Joy to the World. Its third line is one of my favorites. Joy to the World... Um, The Lord has come, but the third line reads this way. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That there's not an area of creation which Jesus does not desire to extend healing, nor invite us to trust and wait in joy at what God has already accomplished and what he promises to do. So for me, I've realized I can't flinch from the pain in the world. I need to embrace it. And to bring it before God, an act of spiritual defiance in both prayer and action that challenges me to move from complacency to action. I tried to put it in practice this morning as I was feeding my daughter, I was watching CNN. Um, If you've been following CNN, you know about Thursday, they showed the story of a young girl, 12 years old, who had been trapped beneath the rubble, her leg pinned, um, with uh, her community using a hacksaw to try to get her out. By the end of Thursday, you found out she'd been rescued and brought to the hospital. And so there's a lot of rejoicing, right? It was somebody many days after the quake who had made it. By Saturday night, the word had come out she had died from her injuries. uh, They brought her to the hospital, managed to give her some painkillers. I believe her last words were, mama, don't let me die. I knew this was happening because I had been reading the headlines on the internet. But as they told the story in video, I wanted to turn away and wash some dishes. And I realized that as an act of spiritual discipline, I needed to not flinch. I needed to watch it. I needed to embrace it and grieve over it and then pray it and bring it before God. I trust for us as a congregation that we're going to trust and wait as well. Jesus invites all of us to carry our crosses. I think that's not merely our own small flaws and our own Um, small petty sins, but it's to carry on ourselves not just the means of our own execution, but the source of our healing and a reminder that respite is not always provided before resurrection. As a community, we live under the sign of the cross to remind us that in the end, Jesus brings complete healing. He has triumphed over death. He has triumphed over sickness and he has triumphed over sin. And that's why we worship with the cross before us. We're invited to bear our cross and embrace both the loss, but also the promise that resurrection comes after death. For those of us who are sick or suffering, feeling the effects of sin, we choose to live under the sign of the cross as a promise that God has promised that one day he will, be, he will complete everything that is, he has intended, that healing will be complete and thorough. For those of us who are healthy and hale, we live under the sign of the cross as a promise and as a partnership with those who suffer, proclaiming when they no longer have the strength, our God heals and our God lives. So here's how we're going to end, at least this time. We're going to move to a service of healing. The elders will come forward, and we thought, Perhaps as we talk about Jesus's healing, which points to his resurrection power as well as his identity as God, that it'd be important for us as a congregation to continue to live under the sign of the cross. So we're gonna invite you to come. If you need healing, but also if you just need the reminder, they'll say a short prayer for you, anoint you with oil, mark you with the sign of the cross on your forehead. For those of us who are ill, may that be a promise. Our statement in faith, if only in our body and not in our heart today, I believe God will heal, thoroughly and completely, whether now or in the future. For those of us who don't currently struggle with illness or a deep sense of brokenness, it would still be appropriate to come up and live under the sign of the cross. But as a community, we proclaim this to be true. And it's with that we work with great hope with great sorrow and great anger and great faith. Let me pray for us, and then I'll invite the elders to come up. (laughs) Lord, I ask for your healing hand, both on my friends here at Community Bible Church, but also everywhere in the world where it is not as you intend. For those who, need physical healing. Lord, I pray because you created the bodies they are, that you would renew and resurrect all that is broken or dying. For those who struggle emotionally or mentally, would you bring order where there's disorder? Would you bring health where there's disease? Would you bring light where there is darkness? For all of us, Lord, would you mark us with the cross, with the promise that you have overcome evil, you have triumphed over death and sin, And that you promise us us resurrection. And then give us the faith to follow you, to hold up one another in prayer. And then to act in faith. Amen. We're not going to have all the elders come forward, but uh, Stan Schuster and I are going to come representing the elders uh, to perform anointings as you wish. What what I would like for you to do is um, we're going to sing this song 336.